0: Bitcoin's adoption is exceeding the pace of internet adoption. So where we are today in terms of Bitcoin adoption looks like 1997 for internet adoption and where we will be in four years, which is trending towards a billion users. That's akin to internet adoption in 2005.
1: All right, I'm here today with Elise. Uh, founding partner, I think that's uh, the right way to describe it, of Stillmark, one of the world's best Bitcoin venture firms. Elise, I want to just jump straight in. Um, I was, I listened to your chat live at Bitcoin Miami, and you started talking about DeFi on Bitcoin. And actually, um, I think a lot of the audience was a little frustrated. I think you got cut off talking about DeFi on Bitcoin. And I want to just continue that conversation right out of the gate. You used this one line, you said, uh, we're about to unlock revolutionary, almost mind-bending opportunities from what's getting built on top of Bitcoin. Can you just take us back and let's continue that conversation? What are you so excited about right now with DeFi on Bitcoin?
0: So what I was talking about in Miami um, and where I got cut off was specifically about what can be built both in DeFi and beyond when you have a truly decentralized protocol that underlies the application or the platform. And so of course that includes DeFi um, and it includes more than DeFi. And I I gave an example of that by um, talking about a company called Sphinx Chat and a decentralized WeChat application basically. Um, But on the DeFi side, I think that Bitcoin presents a really interesting sort of foundation And that's because of the type of decentralization um, that exists in Bitcoin that from our estimation doesn't exist in other cryptocurrencies or protocols. And what that means for end users is that they have the opportunity to engage in a DeFi space and dynamic without having to worry about the underlying rule set changing or the technology breaking. Um, And that's very different.
1: Hmm. What, like, how do you view the protocol progress versus the asset progress, right? Bitcoin, the big B and Bitcoin, the little B right now.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the easier answer is on Bitcoin, the asset. And that's because we have some historical, uh, you know, way to evaluate what it means for Bitcoin, the asset, um, you know, to appreciate or to recognize greater intrinsic value or um, exchange rate. And so really what we've seen historically is that as adoption grows in Bitcoin, so so too does Bitcoin's price. We see an appreciation of Bitcoin price as adoption grows. And I think that's matched with two other things. So first is Bitcoin succeeds only by it being consistent and stable and unchanging in terms of the rules that define it. So one of the things that I said at Bitcoin Miami was that Bitcoin is a system of software rules with no rulers, and that's quite important. And that's inherently linked to the intrinsic value of Bitcoin. Each day that Bitcoin is unchanging in that set of software rules, each day that the monetary policy is consistent every day, every hour, that there's still 21 million coins. That's a day where Bitcoin's intrinsic value has grown. It's become more dependable. And the promises that Bitcoin makes um, can be further counted on. They're proven to be more resilient and robust. Um, and so so that's one thing, um, in addition to adoption, that drives Bitcoin's intrinsic value. And then the second thing is related to the protocol. So you asked about big B Bitcoin, the technologies, Um, small B Bitcoin, the asset is the intrinsic value of the asset is related to the introduction and adoption of various use cases of the technology. And so the first use case to be established um, for retail um, participants, for enterprise, for financial institutions, is Bitcoin as a store of value, as the hardest form of money, and now we're seeing the introduction of other use cases. That includes Bitcoin as a digital money, as a great um, set of rails for remittances and other forms of payment, and we're moving on from there. An example is the DeFi use case, um, or the WeChat, the Sphinx Chat um, use case that I talked about a second ago. Now, Bitcoin, Big um, B Bitcoin the protocols and infrastructure that make up um, Bitcoin technologies. That's where Stillmark is really focused as a VC firm. And so what we're looking for in the way that these protocols develop is that you know, the development environment and roadmaps are distinct. And so what's happening at Bitcoin Core is you know, the um, core developers, who I think represent the most brilliant minds um, in the world, frankly, and they're, they're, they have no um, no peer set. That's how talented these folks are, I, I think. Their development really is, and maintenance of the protocol, is really focused on Bitcoin security, its dependability, its stability, and then they're working to improve things like privacy and thoroughbred. And that's their work. And then separate from that, we have higher layer technologies that are um, optimizing for perhaps a slightly distinct or slightly different set of variables. And so, you know, the health of those environments is, you know, part of how we evaluate what's happening at the protocol level. Um, And then, you know, after that, what we're looking at is, you know, how is privacy improving? How are the developers thinking about creating greater efficiencies in transactions such that there can be more throughput? You know, all all of that, how how is what's being introduced to affect those variables that also can open the door for greater utility of smart contracts. And we're seeing all of that happen on Bitcoin Core and then at the higher layers, both sidechains and Lightning Networks. So I've said a lot there. I'll, I'll pause for a moment.
1: Yeah, there's a whole bunch to dig into. The thing, so one thing I want to focus on right now in back in 2015, 2016, 2017, you had all these companies that got funded that wanted to use the, the protocol, uh, the Bitcoin protocol to improve things. Maybe it was payments, may, you know, what, whatever it may have been. What really we saw play out over the last four years was everything was focused on the Bitcoin, the asset. So the, the companies that made money, it was the, tra- the trading firms, it was the exchanges. I know you've invested in Casa. Um I also love CASA, like those kind of companies that are helping hold, secure, store, and exchange Bitcoin. How do you see this progressing in terms of companies actually engaging with the protocol less so with the asset? Is that gonna be a trend? Are we even close to that?
0: Right. So now you're really asking about indirectly about Stillmark's process of forming investment hypotheses. So Stillmark as a venture firm, today we're investing at pre-seed, seed, seed, series A level, but we're thesis driven. So what that means is that we do what you just outlined. So we look at the protocol, we look at the um, maturation and sort of form and culture of the landscape. And we understand how a company can fit within a a stakeholder set. So what I mean by that is remittances are different when you can have local on and off ramps. So it's a different thing to be able to send Bitcoin from um, the U.S. to the Philippines when on and off ramps between Bitcoin and the local currency exists. Um, and, And so that matters. That's how we evaluate what trends to pay attention to and which to wait on. And so, yes, 2017, 2018 was really about the financialization of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And Stillmark still focuses there. So about half of our focus, half of our time is spent on companies that are financializing the space around Bitcoin. So these are companies like Akaza, which is fulfilling Satoshi's promise of allowing folks to be their own bank. That's important. Um, that adds value to Bitcoin. It affects the way that we can use Bitcoin and who can access Bitcoin um, via their own banking setup. But we also are looking at, and the tech, the protocol level tech is ready for us to invest in companies that are introducing those mind bending use cases that you referenced at the beginning of our chat that can be built on Lightning Network or on Bitcoin sidechains. And so while we're looking at how the space will be financialized, another example of that could be the, the sort of convergence of needs and opportunities between renewable energy providers and Bitcoin miners and how they can benefit one another. We're looking at spaces like that, and I would include that under the theme of the financialization of the Bitcoin landscape. Essentially, renewable energy providers can become their own bank um, and can, you know, can take advantage of the fact that Bitcoin is a form of stored energy. Um, so we're we're doing that, but we're also taking those, you know, really big swings um, at, at these kind of wild moonshot opportunities, like a Sphinx Jet, where. Um, We can ask the question of what does it mean to have a Bitcoin native to a chat app and chat um, messaging running through a system of nodes versus servers. Mm. And so, you know, I think that we are still in the financialization phase, but we're moving beyond that. And something that, you know, has to be mentioned, you know, when we're talking about trends, timely trends and how they match with where the protocols are at is um, Bitcoin for payments. So I think 2021, 2022 are really going to be characterized by Bitcoin for payments. And that's what we've seen with El Salvador.
1: Ooh, a few things I want to dig into. So so actually, so Sphinx Chat, um, I spoke with Marty, Ben and um, Harry. Oh, my God, I'm going to botch his last name, Sedek. I know it's not pronounced Sedek, It's something else. But, um, you know, they, they both brought up Sphinx Chat as well. And Marty uses it for his podcast. And one thing I was thinking about after we recorded, I wish I asked them, but now I have the opportunity to ask you is, You know, Satoshi's vision wasn't about um, information in a peer-to-peer manner. It was more money moving in a peer-to-peer manner, uh, or at least monetary value and and, and that kind of concept. With Sphinx Chat, my understanding is that you're actually reintroducing information. Um, Your information is now traveling over the Bitcoin blockchain. Is that? Can you
0: over the Lightning Network?
1: Over the Lightning Network.
0: So maybe taking a step back to talk about how I came into the Bitcoin space. Um, I, so in 2013, I was working on investments in the cloud networking space. That was, you know, my full-time gig, basically. And in 2012 and 2013 in the cloud networking space, the question was, will enterprise ever adopt a hybrid model, right? And so that question has been answered. It sounds like a silly question now, um, but, but, you know, in 2012 and 2013, I was writing investment memos that asked the question of, will TAM ever expand past two or three billion? So, uh, you know, that's the sort of perspective or mindset I had when I found Bitcoin. And so that's uh, one of the reasons I think why that I found Bitcoin big B, the protocol, um more compelling, or what the hook was for me versus Bitcoin, the digital asset. Um, and so when I found the protocol, what I did was I went through I spent hours and hours just deep dive on the history that preceded Bitcoin and Satoshi's uh, both the you know, the two decades of work that built Bitcoin emerged from, as well as the conversations that were had. Um, you know, within the cypherpunks mailing list group when the white paper was first introduced. And so that was a lot of folks asking, you know, Satoshi, you know, what the purpose was, what the core values were, and then just really sort of testing out the constraints and trade-offs of the tech. An example of something that was knowable if you had gone through those chats um, that could have saved a lot of pain and suffering from 2014 um, investments in payment tech was that payments would not happen at the base layer, but you would need a second higher layer to achieve that sort of throughput? That was actually discussed as early as um, 2009 within these chats. And so, you know, Stillmark uses that to drive um, our insight on the tech. Um, But how I interpret what Satoshi wanted is just this. He wanted greater, you know, sovereignty for individuals. He wanted individuals to be able to um, you know, sort of achieve a greater freedom and a necessary step to that was to have financial freedom. And while that means one thing to you or I, of course, it means, um, you know, the weight of that is much heavier when we're talking about unbanked or underbanked. And, um, you know, I, that was a present sort of um, context for how Bitcoin emerged and for the conversations happening early around um bitcoin. And so, you know, I don't know that was Satoshi thinking that the second layer technology that allowed for payments at scale, that that would also serve as a platform for a decentralized WeChat. I'm not sure that he was thinking specifically that, but he was certainly thinking about what decentralization meant for the transmission of data, and that's what, you know, sending money back and forth really is. And I, I, I personally don't think that he would have been resistant to that sort of use case at all. I think he would have welcomed it. But then I, I want to add one additional thing there. I, um, you know, I'm not one to, I have my ideas about what Satoshi would think about one thing or the next. But I don't, um, you know, suppose to know better than anyone else. And so I, I don't think, you know, I hold the key to understanding what Satoshi would have wanted or would have thought about one thing or the other, but nor do I think anyone else does. And so it's just sort of, you know, looking at the tech, looking what the tech is capable of, understanding the trade-offs and then the value of having, you know, space on the Bitcoin blockchain or ability to transact on the Lightning Network.
1: Uh, Jack Dorsey tweeted out recently that uh, I think it was he, he, he or the Blue Sky or someone uh, is gonna build a decentralized exchange on top of Bitcoin. Do you think that the protocol is mature enough for something like this? Or like, where do we need to go to actually make that happen?
0: So we're looking at opportunities um, just like that. So there are, in addition to um, Jack's team working on something like that, there are smaller, um, very agile teams working on similar on top of Bitcoin side chains. And I think there's certainly an opportunity there. Um, you know, it's, it's all interesting. Um, What we want to consider is the way that traders make the decision about which platforms they use, and evaluating whether those variables can be more favorable in a decentralized environment. And actually, Sam um, from FTX has talked a bit about this, especially recently, um, specifically around time to trade execution. And he was talking about this in terms of decentralized exchange, just generally versus on Bitcoin or on Ethereum or on Solana, Um, you know, we have to attend to what the end user needs. And I think that it makes less sense to try to force a solution than to be realistic about the purpose that any of these protocols serve, including Bitcoin. And so, you know, the way that we're looking at the opportunity is, um, you know, uh, what variables do traders care about and how can a Bitcoin sidechain offer um, a better metric there than can be had in a centralized exchange. And so actually, I'm, I want to make one point here, which is that when we're evaluating companies in the Bitcoin space and Bitcoin itself, it's not about Bitcoin versus Ethereum or a Bitcoin company versus an Ethereum company. Bitcoin is really looking at, um, you know, the traditional space. So Bitcoin is about being a better money versus about being the best cryptocurrency. Um, and this is very different than other spaces that are about kind of being a better Bitcoin. You know, I think that that's aiming really low. Frankly, Bitcoin has much bigger aspirations and that's why still markets focus is there. Um, it's for, you know, it, it's, it's really for, um, sort of like the relevance and cultural impact and then the associated outcomes that can be had when you're aiming that big. The same is true of what's built on Bitcoin technology. So when we're looking at a DEX built on Bitcoin, its its comp set are centralized exchanges and what can be done there versus its comp set being, um, you know, Uniswap or other sorts or Sushi Swap or anything like that. And so... Mm-hmm we're looking at companies that serve the broadest possible audience versus serving, um, you know, anything that, that's, that's niche. We want to, we, you know, these are, we're we're looking at companies that can have real global relevance versus appealing to a subset um, of a trading group.
1: Yeah. Can you take me in the room um, into like the boardroom or into the executive meeting conversation with some of your port codes who are maybe thinking about, how to just extend their businesses right now, and like it strikes me that um, like like let's use Casa again. Like I again, I love Casa, love Jameson, Nick. Like just an, they've built an amazing team, like an amazing business, amazing brand too of hardcore Bitcoiners who are just like great people. If I'm Nick, if I'm sitting in the CEO shoes of Casa, I'm saying, okay, uh, I could probably make more money if I expanded outside of just Bitcoin, but it really hurts my core audience of Bitcoiners. Am, am I thinking about that right?
0: First, um, because you mentioned Nick, I just have to say that, um, you know, Nick is a steward of, you know, cause of the company as well as the technology of multi-sig. And so he's, you know, his mission is really clear, which is to advance those, um, you know, those those assets, those opportunities as far as he can. Um, and so I think I have to say about Nick Newman that I feel really grateful to work with these guys, Nick and Jameson, because they are some of the best decision makers that I've worked with, period, not just in Bitcoin, but in, in Bitcoin and in cybersecurity and cloud networking, everything that I've done in venture. Um, but walk me through the premise. So, you know, CASA provides a be your own bank solution um, today for Bitcoin holders. Can you present to me um, you know audiences outside of Bitcoin that are really compelled by the proposition of be your own bank we can talk, like facts and, and details? I, I just want to hear how you're thinking about it.
1: Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and it's pretty amazing how fast it's growing. I want to jump into the three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche right now. Number one, like I mentioned, they've got this great ecosystem. There are over 200 different projects live. There are over 100 different projects in the pipeline right now. These are DEXs, AMMs, Lend and Borrow platforms, NFT projects, you name it, it's probably getting built on top of Avalanche right now. Number two, Avalanche Rush. This is right around the corner. Ave Curve, Sushi uh, are all launching as part of the Rush program. There are native apps like Banky and Pangolin um, that already have user incentives. So I really recommend you go check those out. Last but not least, the Avalanche Bridge. It is fast. It is easy to use. Uh, it is cheap. Users have been loving it. Uh, it enables folks to seamlessly move your assets from Ethereum over to this Avalanche ecosystem. So that's all for now. Thank you, Avalanche, for sponsoring Empire. I'm going to continue exploring Avalanche in future episodes. Uh, but for now, go follow Avalanche on social media. Uh, check them out on Twitter to stay updated on upcoming news. And uh, yeah, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, yeah. I guess the way that I'm thinking about it is like looking at companies in 2017 who expanded past Bitcoin. Like if you look at, or maybe 2017 is the wrong year, but like a company like Coinbase who basically said, look, we're going to let the community decide. We're going to open up trading to all, you know, altcoins, quote unquote shitcoins, all these things. They said it's not, they said it's not on us to decide. We're going to let the community do it.
0: Right, but there needs to be a demand. That's why I'm asking. So for exchanges, of course, there's a demand to trade many assets because their end user are retail buyers and traders. And so it makes sense that many that will appeal to holders of many assets. But my question is, and not speaking from Nick or Jameson's perspective at all, but just from my own to understand the premise is, is there a high demand for self custody and a secure multi-sig solution in other communities beyond Bitcoin?
1: Probably not, which is why Nick, who's ten times smarter than I am, hasn't hasn't expanded out. I, I think that's where where you're getting at, right?
0: We just have to serve. So it's just those are the types of questions that founders have to ask. And so um, I think the exchange founders asked that, and the answer was that retail buyers and traders, and probably specifically traders, want more than just Bitcoin in you know within the last set of you know x amount of years. And there's a potential that that could change as regulation, um, you know, as regulators pay more attention to the space. But, you know, this is what founders have to ask themselves is how close they want to fly to the sun in terms of pushing the boundaries on, um, you know, what's compliant and what's not, and then who their user base is, if their value proposition is applicable outside of the user base. And so I think that's, you know, this is very much not specific to Casa or any one particular company. It's just a general question that founders have to ask themselves. It's the same of founders outside of the cryptocurrency space.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, All right. Let's bring it back to adoption. You have this point that I find really interesting, which is earning Bitcoin will become more impactful to adoption than investing in Bitcoin. I think I got that right. Can you just expand on this and, and what you mean? Because so far it's been all investing. So I'd love to hear about the earnings side of it.
0: Right, so we're Stillmark is paying a lot of attention to the earnings side, and we've made investments there. Um, two investments there, uh, one not public yet. The other is Stackwork, um, and I expect to continue investing in the earning space. You know, here's the thing: there's multiple ways to enter Bitcoin, and as you said, the dominant has been folks adopting Bitcoin to invest or adopting Bitcoin as sort of a hedge against um, the monetary policy and uh, culture of um, you know, whatever else they hold. And so that's been dominant. But of course, you can a- attain Bitcoin in many ways. So mining is one way, that's a form of earning, I suppose. Earning is another way, and there's a variety of ways to earn Bitcoin. And, and then rewards is you know, an important subcategory of that. And so if we saw people initially enter largely through investments and for the store of value proposition, in addition to speculation, um, we maybe next saw folks start to dip their toe into mining. And so you see that on the retail side with new companies emerging like Compass Mining, um, that's not a Stillmark portfolio company, by the way or you see enterprise adoption through enterprise grade um, hosting offerings like what Blockstream offers. And so we've, you know, that channel has been opened um, in the past several years through companies like the two that I just mentioned. Um, But now the opportunity is going to be also to earn Bitcoin for folks that, you know, are not in as privileged a position as maybe users of, um, of Blockstream hosting services or compass mining, maybe. And so what that looks like for stack work, an example that I can share with you is that folks can do mechanical Turk-like work, which means photo tagging or video categorization, um, simple task on their smartphone and get paid in real time in Bitcoin. That's happening on the Lightning network via SaaS. And so what that means is that folks, instead of working um, together under one roof, in order to receive their paycheck, they can work at home um, under their own roof and be paid via their mobile phone. That's that's one example. We've also seen um, some, well, some incredible traction actually on the gaming side, which is another form of earning that we're paying attention to. And so in terms of the number of people holding Bitcoin in four or five years, I think that will be um, dominated by folks that ha- hold Bitcoin because they've earned it versus folks that hold Bitcoin as an investment or for speculative purposes, um, you know, or otherwise. And that's relevant um, to Bitcoin's culture.
1: It's starting to feel, I mean, I'm going to tie this into another one of your theses that I think think I'll get this one right as well. I think you've said uh, Bitcoin is fintech for underserved and underrepresented folks, and it's starting to see, I think you're starting to see both of your theses play out here, Um, it's it's a really cool portfolio company, I'd I'd actually never heard of it, Um, but you're starting, like things like El Salvador, which we were talking about right before we hit record, of, you know, there are a lot of folks where these FinTech apps that enable just a better, more seamless financial life, uh, oftentimes are not in the communities of these underrepresented folks. And so I think you're starting to see Bitcoin become this FinTech, for the underrepresented. So I think it's interesting that both of your theses are starting to play out like this.
0: Great, well, thank you for saying that. So we, I do see Bitcoin as being FinTech for poor people. And really what that means is that Bitcoin is a financial platforming tools for everyone. And so if poor people and, um, you know, folks that are otherwise, um, you know, outside of powerful circles, can access the tech than anyone can. And that's what Bitcoin is. And so, and and in order to get to where Bitcoin is, you must be decentralized. And so I think um, in addition to Bitcoin being FinTech for poor people, um, it's also true that decentralized networks are inherently more scalable. Of course, those two things are related. And so that's another reason to be very bullish on Bitcoin. I think that optimizing for decentralization actually is an optimization for your total addressable market.
1: Yeah. Can you take me into, uh, you've been seeing the future for years now. And so can you take me into the future a little bit, maybe five years out from now, 10 years out from now? Um, Bitcoin is so many different things to so many different people, right? The way that you explain Bitcoin to a hedge fund manager in New York, very different than how you explain it to uh, a community member in El Salvador. What do you think Bitcoin looks like in the United States in five years? years, maybe 10 years? And what does Bitcoin look like in developing nations in five years, 10 years?
0: So sooner than the next five to 10 years, what I'm expecting to see that's relevant for especially emerging markets is the opportunity to use Bitcoin protocols without having exposure to Bitcoin's volatility. And what that would look like is ability to use the Lightning Network while denominating the asset or value in that network in your local fiat currency. That's important because folks of lower socioeconomic status have less ability to tolerate volatility. And so by holding your your Bitcoin denominated in, in fiat, You can access sort of almost a checking account capability, meaning the money that you were likely to spend in the near term could be denominated in your local currency while still having the efficiencies gained by the Lightning Network, and then maintain a, a savings account in Bitcoin. And that would be the sort of value that you had that you expected to not need to access for the next four or five years. And you would be then allowing that to be stored and denominated in Bitcoin in order to participate in Bitcoin's appreciation. So I, you know, that's one of the things that we're excited about. The way that that um, can work, uh, you know, in, in, by Q4 post taproot activation at Bitcoin core protocol level is that you could use DLCs to define discrete law contracts, to define a Lightning Network payment channel um, in a local fiat currency. So that the other side of the channel would essentially be a long Bitcoin position. I'm very open to you know sort of seeing what happens and being incorrect in these projections. Of course, you know my job on the venture side is to understand what the technology can do at the protocol level, and then to have founders um, show me what that means for their their target user base. So. I'm happy to be proven wrong here, but I imagine that in developed markets, like in the United States, that most people will access Bitcoin um, through its, through Big B Bitcoin, through the protocols, um, because they will be using, you know, Bitcoin sort of under the hood, you know, in their other behaviors. And so the way that that would happen is that enterprise would adopt Bitcoin technologies for the sake of their own operational efficiencies. And that, as a result of that, Bitcoin technologies would be introduced to the those that set of enterprises' user base. Um, you know, I'm happy to be wrong about this, um, but I think that the need is less acute in a developed market than it is in an emerging market, and the need for Bitcoin today is less acute with folks that have access to traditional financial services than it is for folks that don't.
1: Yeah, I remember. I'll always remember this quote from Wences Casares from Zappo on Laura Shin's podcast. It was like an episode in 2016, 2017. I forget. I think it was during 2017. And he said that the the United States is the toughest place to explain Bitcoin uh, in the entire world because our government works and our monetary system works. But you go somewhere where our government doesn't work and the monetary system doesn't work and Bitcoin becomes quite obvious to folks. So I don't know, feels that that Wences is, is a brilliant person and that his yeah. quote feels relevant to what you just said.
0: So he is um, right. So I think that just because you're in a developed market doesn't mean that you can't understand the value of Bitcoin. And, you know, that's, I think, why Bitcoiners in the U.S., in Canada and other Um, developed and privileged nations, you know, recognize and are passionate about the tech. And that's because they, you know, have the ability to sort of imagine um, a a world that's different, even if they aren't feeling, um, you know, the day-to-day stress of having, um, you know, an obviously broken monetary system or, um, you know, other sort of financial strains um, you can certainly recognize the value of Bitcoin without being in an emerging market or from an emerging market. It's just that if you are unbanked or underbanked, um, you know, or otherwise exposed, that then you're forced to look for solutions. And I think that, you know, I, I hope that Bitcoin is an obvious solution there. And, um, you know, I, it seems like it is at least for, uh, you know, a, a handful or more of countries in, in Latin America, for example
1: yeah um one other thing from the, the my first question was about something that you said at bitcoin miami uh one of my last questions here is going to be also about that panel olaf said something about the amount of bitcoin that's now held on other blockchains like wrapped bitcoin i think the number he said is it's one percent now it's going up to ten percent or more and he you know he started to talk about the separation of like little b and big and big b and i think you kind of pushed back on him and said Uh, no, this is not, this is A, either this is not going to happen or B, this is not good for Bitcoin. So I'd love to hear just like, I might be botching all of that, by the way, but I'd love to just hear your thoughts on on that topic.
0: So I don't think it's, I mean, it's neutral for Bitcoin. Um, What I was pushing back against was that the question he was responding to was, What's the most exciting thing happening in Bitcoin right now mm. and it's only if you are unaware of what's happening in Bitcoin that you can possibly think that wrapped Bitcoin is the most important thing happening in Bitcoin and I don't think Olaf is unaware I imagine that he's you know quite aware and mm. it might be that I don't know I'm not I'm not sure where that response came from um, but it's not the most important thing happening in Bitcoin right now of course it's not. And so I was saying that that specifically is wrong, but the more important thing um, on that thread is that, you know, you can't separate the asset from the protocol. Of course you can't. We've had proof of this in, um, you know, several of the recent hacks on Ethereum, Um, you know, they happen on a monthly basis, but if you are, you know, if you're storing Bitcoin on an Ethereum protocol, you are not holding Bitcoin. You're holding, you know, some form of a promise that you can later redeem this for Bitcoin. And if the underlying technology that that's promise is held on um, is breached, then there's a question about whether you can claim your Bitcoin or not. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm only a passive observer to the impact of these breaches on wrapped Bitcoin. But I would presume that in those moments of, um, you know, a, a hack happening that the folks that held wrapped Bitcoin wished, in fact, that they instead held Bitcoin, because if they had held Bitcoin, their assets would not have been exposed um, to a hack on Ethereum.
1: Yeah. Elise, um, anything else that strikes you as just another mind-bending revolutionary thing that we haven't talked about yet? Anything else that you want to dig into in this conversation? I know we've already covered a lot.
0: You know, I think there's a couple important things to note. And one is that You know, just by without any bells and whistles, just by Bitcoin continuing to be committed to the hard promises enforced by the software rules, Bitcoin's adoption is exceeding the pace of Internet adoption. So where we are today in terms of Bitcoin adoption looks like 1997 for Internet adoption and where we will be in four years, which is trending towards a billion holders or those transacting on Bitcoin. That's akin to internet adoption in 2005. And so you see that there's this really rapid pace and, you know, that's just catalyzed by the fact that you have access to a decentralized financial platform and the world's best store of value. Just that is enough, but what we can continue to build on and around Bitcoin even expands, I think that future audience. And so it's a it's an incredibly dynamic time in Bitcoin, and I'm I feel really grateful to be involved.
1: You and me both. You and me both. Um, Elise, where can more people learn more about the firm, about yourself? I don't know if there's a page where you can show off where your port codes are hiring or any of your port codes that you want to highlight right now, but where where can folks learn more?
0: So stillmark.com has um, thoughts on our, our our purpose, mission, and opportunity, as well as notes on our public portfolio companies and then i'm you know present sometimes on twitter my handle is just my name my first and last name elise colleen and always happy to engage in and gain insight from the ways that others are thinking about the tech and how they see things differently where you know we're trying to make sure that we acknowledge the breadth and depth of value that bitcoin can provide and in order to do that we have to be Uh, amenable, um, and very excited to hearing how others think about it. And so Twitter's been a good source for that.
1: Yeah. Just trying not to get sucked in too much on Twitter. That's right. (laughs) Yes. All right. Elise, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate it. And we'll uh, do it again soon.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Thanks so much for coming on.